Happy Saturday. It's April 16th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday, Ashley. Just want to remind everyone not to be a downer on the weekend, but Monday here in America, your taxes are due. So if you're sweating it out, go for it. Jeez. Well, way to start things off. I I just, you know, don't want anyone to be caught, you know, with uh, shorthanded this this year. So. Dude, I thought you were going to start with the fact that I've been felled by COVID after a long last, but no. Well, I know. Do you want to tell our (laughs) listeners? It came for Ashley. It came for me. I mean, this is the risk of having children, right? Uh, They go to school, they get COVID, whatever, who knows? Yeah, it's actually, you know, after two years of dreading it, it's kind of a relief now that it's finally here at my doorstep. But I have to tell you, like, it's been incredible mild so far. We're very lucky. My primary symptom seems to be completely screwing up at Wordle. Like, I think the COVID brain fog is real. I have not got Wordle in like four days and it's not been that hard. Ashley texted me over the weekend and I said, well, how are you feeling? She said, well, I have a headache and I feel really tired, but that just might be about having two kids at home right now. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, it's me and Eric Adams, and it turns out half of Washington. So, you know, here we go. But the good news is it buys me like three months of immunity, right? So therefore, I'm going to be out and about even more than usual. Here we go. Wow. Okay. Just in time for your American Vax summer. I don't know what it, but yeah, you'll be on the loose again. How's that for optimism, Michael? How's that? You start with tax day. I start (laughs) with the sunny... (laughs) Jeez. Our listeners are like, next. I start with the bill is due. And you're like, let's let's take the top off. It's Daytona. Let's go. I love it. Well, we've got one heck of an issue of airmail this week. Lots to discuss. Lots of things happening in the news. As Maureen Dowd says, let's hope that Kim Kardashian and Pete, whatever his name is, do not get married and distract us even further from what's actually happening, which is just Ukraine. And that is a big part of what we're going to be talking about here today. So we're going to start off with some historical parallels here, courtesy of our good friend and writer, Tim Bouvery. Tim is a British historian. He has written he's written several books. He used to be a political journalist at Channel 4 News. His first book, Appeasing Hitler, Chamberlain, Churchill, and the Road to War, was published in 2019. And he's currently working on a new book on Allied diplomacy during World War II. So he's got lots of interesting parallels to draw here about the conflict in Ukraine. And we're thrilled to have Tim. Welcome, Tim. Okay, Tim, you're a historian. Talk to us about what happened in Finland in 1939. So, There had always been a very large Russian interest in Finland. Finland used to be part of the old Tsarist Empire. And then the Finns had vigorously fought for their independence and gained it following the Russian Civil War, which came after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. And Finland and Russia are very close together. Leningrad, as it then was, St. Petersburg now is extremely close to Finland. And Stalin essentially wanted to reclaim these lost territories and was fully of the view that the Soviet Union, as it then was, needed a series of buffer zones that protect it against invasion. And that included the Baltic states. Ukraine was already part of the Soviet Union and these eastern provinces of Finland. And so he effectively summoned the Finnish leaders to the Kremlin and said that if they didn't hand them over, there would be very severe consequences. And the Finns surprised the world by refusing. Tim, much like what we've seen with Zelensky and the Ukrainians, right? What struck you when you first started watching this conflict unfold? The most significant thing about the war in Ukraine, even more significant than the absolutely horrific war crimes, which we're now seeing on a daily basis coming out of the liberated areas, is the fact that Ukrainians not only fought, 
but they fought with tremendous courage and skill. Ukraine had collapsed in the first few weeks, then none of this huge revolution in or reversion to traditional Western policy with regard to NATO, the European Union, strengthening of the Western alliance, attempts to restrain wanton acts of aggression, none of this would happen. And that makes them very similar to the Finns. Stalin thought that he could wrap up Finland in a week. It took him three months, in fact, and the Soviet Union lost 200,000 men during the campaign. The Finns lost only about 25,000. The Finnish response was heroic. It was inspirational. It captured the imagination of the world. But the world didn't come to Finland's aid. Finland could only hold on for so long. And I think it would probably be fair to say that Ukraine could only have held on so long if it was not receiving significant Western armaments. They would run out without an influx of Western material. And Tim, how did the West rush to the aid of Finland or fail to do so? Tell us a little bit about the response among other European countries to their struggle against Stalin. Well, the crucial thing to remember here is that there is already a war going on. In September 1939, Hitler had invaded Poland and Britain and France had declared war in Germany in part of honouring their treaty obligations to that country. What is striking is how the Western world is almost more horrified by the Soviet invasion of Finland in November 1939 than it was by the German invasion of Poland two months earlier. We all know about the invasion of Poland because it began the Second World War. But actually, people were even more shocked by the Soviet invasion of Finland. So there was huge sympathy in the West, but it didn't translate into much act because although the United States was highly sympathetic and President Roosevelt made a very robust statement attacking the Soviet Union, the United States was isolationist. They offered Finland some credit. They sent a few aeroplanes, but not much. And effectively, that was it. The only powers which could help Finland were Britain and France. But there were two problems. There. One was that in a fight for their own national survival against Nazi Germany, could Britain and France really risk starting a war with the Soviet Union at the same time? Most people thought not. And secondly, Britain and France didn't have much war material of their own. So, Tim, how do you think history has judged the response to the Finnish struggle? And what are the lessons that we should take as we in the West and other countries in Europe think about dealing with Ukraine? I think the West has seen the Finnish struggle as a moment of great heroism. But I think the main lesson is that small countries are capable of amazing acts of resistance if you are attacked in what is an unprovoked, unjustifiable war, you tend to have a very high level of morale and moral outrage, which the attackers clearly don't have. The Soviet Union, the soldiers of the Red Army were told, just as the soldiers of the Russian army today were told, that they would be entering Finland or entering Ukraine now as liberators, that they would be welcomed, and that these states Finland or Ukraine now, these are false states, they're artificial, they're not proper nations, they've been built up purely to frustrate the natural imperialist, nationalist ambitions of Mother Russia. So small bands of highly motivated, efficient, well-organized soldiers can disrupt seemingly far greater militaries, but they can probably only do so for so long. And I think that the lesson is simple. If, if uh, the West wanted Finland to survive, they had to arm Finland. And if the West wants Ukraine to survive and they want 
the Russian forces to be rolled back across the Ukrainian frontiers, then they have to provide very significant war material, which to an extent they are already doing. Tim, so how did it end for the Finns and what parallels can we draw there? The Finns were eventually overwhelmed by sheer volume of numbers. I mean, just just thinking of some of the smaller parallels, which so the Finns had hardly any tanks, and yet they were facing Soviet tanks. They started filling wine bottles and others with petrol and throwing them at the tanks. This is where the Molotov cocktail comes from, named after the Soviet foreign minister, Vashlav Molotov. But eventually, sheer weight of numbers and lack of war resources wore the Finns down, and they were forced to come to the negotiating table. Stalin, it is true, managed to get from Finland more territory than he had originally demanded, about 9% of Finnish territory and about 30% of Finland's economic resources. And yet Finland remained an independent country and was not Bolshevized as the Baltic states were or part of the eastern section of Romania later was by the Soviet Union. So the Finns achieved a lot by their resistance. And Stalin strategically miscalculated by exposing the extreme weakness of the Soviet military. It's mind-boggling that within three, four months, they lost 200,000 men, though. That's just the definition of cannon fodder. Well, they were, and they were lost not purely by the bullets and Molotov cocktails of the Finns. As happened later in the Second World War, there were detachments of the NKVD, the secret police, with machine guns behind the Finnish lines who would mow down any Russian soldiers who retreated or fleed. Almost everything, apart from wanton death and destruction that Vladimir Putin wanted to achieve in this war, he has not achieved. In fact, he's provoked almost the opposite response. This has been the greatest spur to Ukrainian nationalism in the history of its nation, practically, or certainly in the last hundred years. This has taken a president who was not universally popular in his country to not just great popularity in Ukraine, but placed him as a massive international figure of inspiration, who is single-handedly, or certainly by his determination to remain in Kyiv rather than flee the capital, has made the battle for Ukraine a battle for the Western way of life, of democracy, of living in a law-based, rules-based international order. It's strengthened NATO, it's strengthened the European Union, it's caused a revolution in German defence and energy policy, It's made the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO extremely likely. It's almost impossible to see how this could have gone any worse for Vladimir Putin. Well, Tim, we thank you so much for your insight and historical context. Not at all. It's a great pleasure. All right, Tim, we'll we'll be talking to you again soon. Wishing you all the best. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you. On the subject of Putin, Ashley, there's also, I should just... uh, mention there is a fascinating interview this week by Jim Kelly in the issue with Bill Browder the who wrote a terrific book that came out uh, about six or seven years ago called Red Notice a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice he's got a new book out but Browder is a one-time Russian investor And curiously enough, his grandfather, Earl, was president of the American Communist Party in the 1930s. And he turned against Putin and his corrupt cronies almost 20 years ago. And he was banned from the country in 2005. Most fascinating is 
when he was running his company, he discovered Putin had looted his company to the tune of more than $200 million. And uh, afterwards, his Russian tax advisor, Sergei Magnitsky, was uh, arrested, jailed, tortured, and then beaten to death. So he's back with a new book, and it's a very revealing interview by Jim about one Browder's firsthand perceptions of what makes Putin tick and how we need to confront him even more than we are. All right. Please, God, tell me we've got something slightly cheerier to talk about. How about Flora Gill this week? She has a hilarious story about why Brits love a tacky reality TV show set in Los Angeles's most ostentatious McMansions. I'm referring, of course, to Selling Sunset, and which is not so big here in the U.S., but is much bigger in the UK. I think it draws on too many uncomfortable truths. Like it's when someone puts a mirror up too closely to your face, it's just hard to watch. That's why I think it's not popular here. But you know, no wonder that everyone over in the UK is loving it. It's uh, not always the most flattering picture of America. In fact, it shows off our extremely superficial side. You've got a a bunch of, well, here's the premise of the show. It's a, a lot of attractive young good-looking real estate agents going all over Los Angeles, selling expensive properties as their lives unfold around them. Um, It's kind of like the Real Housewives of OC, but with a little bit more commerce. Uh, Yeah, it's on Netflix, of course. She says Netflix doesn't release viewing figures, but there are proportionally 50% more Google searches in the UK than in the US for the TV show. And she says, I think I know why. This is her story revealing why. It is so popular. I wonder if she's watching The Dropout. Are you watching The Dropout? I am watching The Dropout. Don't you think it's one of the best shows on TV in the past five years? Um. <laughs> All right, there's your answer, ladies and gentlemen. No, I just was, I, I, Bob, that's, that's a lot. I just was, you know, ticking through my lockdown adult brain is what have I, what have I watched in the last five years. You love it though, right? Oh, I think it's great. I, I think Amanda Seyfried is at the height of her powers in this show. And I thought that you and I in particular knew everything there was to know about Elizabeth Holmes. But as is so often the case, there's a dark romance at the heart of so many of these stories. And I love the way that this show and prior to this show, the podcast on which it was based, framed the Elizabeth Holmes story around the unfolding of her romance with Sonny Balwani. Um it just shows how really damaged and fragile she was from the very beginning. If anything, I think it does a great job of pushing the story forward in ways we wouldn't have expected. All right. An early recommends. But on the theme of houses, Ashley, really wealthy houses. Yeah. The houses of the very, of the very wealthy. You edited a piece this week by Rachel Johnson, right? I did edit a story by Rachel Johnson this week. Editing stories by Rachel Johnson is among the best parts of my day. And I mean, leave it to Rachel to figure out that you can now get a master's degree in country house studies. That's right. Some people get a master's in journalism. Others get a master's in history or English or math or something very useful like, I don't know, engineering. But in the United Kingdom, they're trying to preserve this great legacy of the moneyed country estate through education. And Rachel attended one of these classes and is here to tell us all about it. Rachel's a wonderful journalist, a TV presenter, the author of several books, the sister of Boris Johnson, not like that has anything to do with it, and a friend of Airmail, and we're thrilled to have her. Welcome, Rachel. Well, I hope I can deliver. I mean, it sounds like I'm going to have a sort of final examination on this subject. So what happened was I spotted a tiny little item in one of the papers saying that Charles Spencer... Earl Spencer, younger brother of Princess Diana, was giving a lecture at the Reform Club 
in the Country House Studies degree course that you could take at Buckingham University. And this just blew my mind, basically. I mean, everything about it, you know, the fact that it was Earl Spencer, the classes were at the Reform Club, and that you could actually study for a degree in Country House Studies. I thought it sounded like the lyrics of a Blur song. You remember that one, obviously? He lives in a house, a very big house in the country, which everyone has danced to in the 90s. And now it turns out you not only dance to Blur, but you can actually study country houses. So I went off to the Reform Club and I went to a class. What were the students like here? What was the constituency? Well, there was Julie Montague, who is famous, it turns out, because she's known as the American Viscountess. And she was absolutely adorable, very pretty, very focused. And the funny thing about her is that when she met her husband, she had no idea who he was, or indeed what a Viscount was. And he was wearing, they were at some conference, and he was wearing a name badge, she says. And she thought Viscount rhymed with discount, which is an incredibly apposite thing, misunderstanding, because the whole theme of Country House Studies is how the owners have had to keep them going despite high death duties, high estate taxes, inheritance taxes, and all the rest of it. And how before the war, it was considered very vulgar to have anybody in your house as a paying person, unless it was for charity. Then after the war, they had to somehow keep the houses going. And these huge piles, there are so many of them, but estate duties were like 90%. So how could the sons actually afford to keep them on? So this is the story of the country house in Great Britain since the war. And this is what the country house studies course is about. And it, I can't tell you how fascinating it all is. Anyway, so Julie is obviously doing country house studies because she's going to inherit a great big pile. I mean, she lives in one pile and she's presumably going to inherit another one because her father, father-in-law is the Earl of Sandwich. And so they're there sort of talking about, you know, diversification and ancillary attractions. How much can you charge? And is the safari park over? And to what extent has rock and the country house been symbiotic? And it has been, if you think right back in the old days, you'd have, I can't think, like Prockle Harem would, would play at some crumbling pile. And that still goes on as well. I mean, and I, I think I end my piece in Castle Howard, which is where Bridgerton is being filmed. They're doing sort of rock concerts there. And I think for the first time this year. So a whole separate monograph, I think, in Country House Study should be the relationship between the country house and rock and pop, because that is a whole separate lovely little monograph. Rachel, the whole notion of these country houses and these estates used to be about keeping people out, right? Like the mystery was the key component of the charm. And can you explain a little bit why all of that has changed and why they've had to open the doors, so to speak, to the masses? Well, yes, I actually, I think this is what Julie Montague says. She says the history of the country house and the architecture of the country house is all about keeping the public out, the long drive, the moat, the ha-ha the turrets, the arrow slits where you could fire at the enemy from your medieval castle. But then, of course, after the war, a Labour government came in, 1945, and it imposed these steepling death duties and inheritance taxes. So that then the game was how to get the public in. So this is the great kind of hinge moment in the history of the country house. And since that point, in fact, in a way, it's led to a renaissance in the country house. It hasn't been the rise and fall of the country house. The, the course tutor, Adrian Tinniswood's book about this is called The 
fall and rise of the country house because he thinks that the way the aristocracy has had to respond and open its doors and bring the public in has actually been the making of the country house as well as the saving of it. I mean, of course, it's still incredibly expensive when you've got acres of roof to mend every year and you've got a huge staff payroll bill to pay. And your only income is maybe from tied cottages, rental, and the occasional open day to the public. I know, Rachel, you were only there for one of the classes, but did you get a sense of, are there exams? It's a good question. You have to submit a thesis. There are day trips. You go and you you look at different sorts of country houses. You see the different ways they have evolved over the centuries and what the current owners are doing. So you have these day trips and then you submit a thesis to the course tutor. And then you get your, I think the Buckingham is the only university which offers an actual master's. But I actually did a little like Googling and loads of other universities in England offer comparable modules in their history courses or in their heritage courses or in their art history courses, specifically about the country houses, the great country houses of England. And in a way, it's not surprising because they are so much a feature. They tell us so much about the history of England and they're so embedded in the history of the royal family. This was where Queen Elizabeth slept or this was the house where Queen Mary was imprisoned. And even Chequers, the prime minister's residence in the Chilterns has got an attic room where Lady Mary Grey, who was the sister of, I'm going to get this wrong, somebody like Lady Jane Grey was imprisoned and you can see her graffiti still in the walls of the attic bedroom. So the country houses are sort of living, breathing history still. And I can't explain how important they are in the fabric of the country still. And that's why, of course, I think we all love watching Downton or Bridgerton and all those things because... They tell us about the past and the idea that all these places are turned into girls' schools, which is what happened in the war, seems very barbaric to us now. And I think the National Trust, where where my husband used to work, has been incredibly important in saving a lot of them for the nation. But as the Country House Studies course taught me as well, thousands and thousands were just pulled down after the war because it was simply too important to even keep them standing. If you could have one of them, what one is the most beautiful or that you would just love to spend some time in? Oh, I mean, so many of them. That's a really good question. There's an exquisite manor in Oxfordshire called Garsington Manor, which was the home of the sort of, it was one of the country residences of the Bloomsbury set. It was owned by Lady Ottoline Morrill and then subsequently owned by my own godmother. And when I was at Oxford, I would go out there and she gave me a party when I left Oxford and I was thrown in the lake. So I think that's the one. That's the one I feel closest to. And Rachel, make sure to mention to our listeners that the National Trust not only deals with these incredible stately homes, but they also have a pretty incredible collection of holiday cottages to rent. I think it's about 470 of them across England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So if you don't get that invitation to Castle Howard this year, you can always rent your own from the National Trust. That's very true. And I'll tell you another tip. Landmark Trust cottages are also a really good bet. If you want to go to somewhere quite special on the English coast or the English countryside, look at National Trust and Landmark Trust cottages or houses. And I don't think you could go wrong. Wonderful. Well, Rachel, if you fancy bringing a guest the next time that you hit up one of these places, you know who to call. And until then, we will talk to you again here soon on Morning Meeting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you, Rachel. Have a great day. Bye, Rachel. Ashley, the weekend's here. 
You've got plenty of time at home now. What can you recommend for us? <laughs> well, Ocean Vuong is a poet from the New York area. He was best known for poetry sort of at the beginning, and then he published a book, a novel in 2019 called On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. It was a fictionalized but semi-autobiographical tale of a young man coming of age and interacting with his mother who was a nail salon worker. And his mother passed away in 2019 right around the time that his book was published and his literary fame was assured. And now he has published a remarkable collection of poetry called Time is a Mother that just came out. And I I love it. I love his work. I love kind of everything that he stands for and talks about. And he gave a really incredible interview on Fresh Air that you should listen to. It's one of the best. Like, it just is very moving. He cries through a lot of it and, like, talks so much about his personal history and his story. And it's no wonder that this guy is really relating to readers on the page. So his new collection of poetry is called Time is a Mother by Ocean Vuong. Wonderful. Can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's great. And listen to the interview on Fresh Air. We recommend it. We listen to podcasts here. We recommend our uh, other podcasts by all means. We're not insecure. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, Terry Gross. As long as you keep recommending us to your friends and, and, and family. That's really good. And then there's a book that I've been reading. It's a book by Lulu Miller. It's called Why Fish Don't Exist, A Story of Love, Loss, and the Hidden Order of Life. Have you heard about this? I have. Did you read it? No, it's the life of the biologist, right? Yeah, so it's a, a story about a guy named David Star Jordan who is a taxonomist, and he lived about 100 years ago. He was credited with discovering nearly a fifth of the fish known to humans in his day, but ultimately his specimen collections were demolished by lightning, fire, and the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which sent about a thousand of his discoveries that were housed in little glass jars plummeting to the floor. So his life's work disappeared in an instant. Um, this is written by NPR reporter Lulu Miller, who heard this anecdote about his life and decided that he would be a good subject of the book. And it's just incredibly fun for those who are fans of the natural world and science and for those who just like a good story. Can't wait. Thank you. All right. And Michael, do you have anything at all, anything to recommend to us? I do. I have The Investigation, which is on HBO Max in this limited series from Denmark. It came out about a year ago, and I'm just discovering it as it got kind of lost in my COVID blur. It's a slightly fictionalized and honestly, I think a very elegant telling of a true crime you may remember, which is the killing of a Swedish journalist named Kim Wall, who disappeared after going to interview a man who built a homemade submarine. And it was a gruesome crime, but this show is something I think different. It's a patient and beautifully shot humane drama. For one, the creators even refuse to name the killer. Instead, he's this presence that's kind of always there, just as he's in the mind of the police detective who's trying to solve it, as well as the victim's parents. If you're a fan of Borgen, which was the super popular Danish crime series, you'll definitely want to check it out, as it's directed by the man who wrote that series, Tobias Lindholm, who also co-wrote the movie Another Round with Mads Mikkelsen, which won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film, I think, a year or two ago. So check it out. It's The Investigation on HBO Max. All right. Thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. And Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? The Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe 
and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. But most of all, thank you for joining us.